A week ago, we started our series on stewardship. You can turn to Matthew chapter 25 for this evening. That is where we're going to be spending the rest of the evening. And as we think about stewardship, there are some examples of individuals in our society who were poor stewards of their finances. You may think of MC Hammer. How many of you know who MC Hammer is? All right, enough of you. Yay, if you were born after 1990, you probably have no idea who this ancient legend is. But MC Hammer was a big deal in the 90s. Uh, He was a rapper. And so he, some say, blew up to $70 million of his fortune in bad decisions in just a few years. There you go, there's MC. He had a staff of 200 people and a separate entourage of 40 individuals, and he would pay $500,000 a month to support his staff. Half a million bucks a month for all the support that he needed. He built himself a 40,000 square foot mansion to the tune of 30 million. Around his property, he had gold-plated gates. Inside his house, he had a gold toilet. Um, He had two swimming pools, The best story is that one of them was shaped like his pants. Go back to the picture of his pants. It's important. There you go. That's his pants. And so apparently he had a pool that looked like that. His house, the next image, he had Italian marble floors in his house, a recording studio, 17-car garage. He had a theater that fit 33 people, um, 33 people seats at this theater inside his house. He had a baseball diamond at his house, multiple tennis courts, rare antiquities. He had nine racehorses. Those are not cheap. He had a dance floor and he had a Lamborghini, a private jet, two private helicopters and a stretch limo. End of the day, after he made all those millions, he was in debt $13 million. Poor stewardship. Yes, he made his own money, but he was a poor steward of his funds. You may know of Mike Tyson world champ in boxing. People say that he accumulated uh, uh, wealth up to $400 million throughout his career. Now, within a few years, he lost it all. In fact, he went $50 million into debt. He ended up in prison for doing bad things, like biting somebody's ear off and stuff like that. You can Google that. That was not the reason he went to prison, but that's also not cool. Um, Four and a half million dollars he spent on cars. So shortly after getting out of prison, he spent four and a half million on cars. He bought 19 cars for his friends. I wish I was his friend at that time. Um, He spent, this is the best, $400,000 on pigeons. I don't know what you do. I mean, people like do dog fights and stuff, but he had pigeon, a pigeon addiction, apparently. He bought big cats, a Siberian tiger. He spent $300,000 on taking care of his lawn on a regular basis. A quarter of a million a month he would spend on working out. 230000 on cell phones, pagers, phone bills. 125000 to take care of those cats that he would collect. 100000 a month on jewelry and clothes. How many of you have a... Let's just get a tenth of that, a thousand bucks a month in jewelry and clothes. Right? Somebody raised their hand. Yeah, right. He bought a, or had a 21 bedroom, 24 bathroom mansion. It had a nightclub, a casino. He had multiple homes elsewhere. He, you know, MC only got a toilet that was gold. This guy went beyond that. He has a $2.2 million gold bathtub. 
which is fantastic. That's his house. He went bankrupt and lost it. Um, $50 million into debt. Somehow he's back up now. So he's now worth about 10 million in case you're Googling him and you can see his awesome tattoo right there. Uh, but there's some amazing videos you can YouTube of his ability. Then the last one, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, as you all know, of course, a star. And he also, unfortunately, did not always spend his money wisely, even though he spent over, he sold over 60 million albums and, of course, became extremely wealthy. When he died, people estimate, this is LA Times, that he was half a billion, $500 million into debt. Now, one of those reasons was this Neverland ranch that you see in front of you. He had a train, he had a movie theater, a zoo with tigers, elephants, monkeys. And uh, people say he could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in minutes. I'm sure you can find other stories of poor stewardship. And in some sense, we don't feel too sad for these individuals because they earned the money. And so in some sense, they can do whatever they want with it. But imagine if you were the person who entrusted wealth to these individuals. And then they took your money and instead of stewarding it faithfully and wisely, they squandered it the way we just talked about it. How would you feel? Would you feel like they're accountable to you? Would you feel like you could actually sue them and have a day in court? And it would be the just thing to do because of the way they misstewarded your funds. We're talking about money. And of course, it's horrific and very bad examples of misusing your funds. But to a far greater degree, the Bible teaches that each believer has been given a stewardship. And as we talk about the theme of stewardship, tonight I'd like to go into Matthew chapter 25, because in this passage, we learn that there is an accountability that we're going to have in the way we stewarded what God has entrusted to us. Last week, we introduced this theme and we talked about two unique terms from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, stewards and servants. And in that context, in 1 Corinthians 4, the idea that Paul presents is that you are a representative of, the, of God. You come with his authority, you come under his banner, and you ultimately will be accountable to him. And in verse 7, Paul says, as you reflect on your life, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? And if it has been given to you, why do you act as if it has not been given to you? In other words, everything that you have in your life is a stewardship entrusted to you by God. You come with divine authority to proclaim the mysteries of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And none of those opportunities and none of those abilities are inherent to you. Rather, they've all been given to you by God. And that's why he says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 4, it is of utmost importance that stewards be found Faithful, And toward the end of the evening last week, I said that one way to measure faithfulness is through what? Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Every single person who's a true believer will be fruitful. It's a question of degree and quantity. But the Bible promises that if something has been entrusted to you, you are going to be fruitful. Tonight, I'd like to talk about that measurement fruitfulness what does that look like to be a faithful steward 
who is fruitful. And the parable I'd like to look at is in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. It's called the parable of the talents. For it is just like a man, the kingdom of God is, or the kingdom of heaven. That's the beginning in verse 1. And he'll give us three illustrations, and this is the third one. The kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The context of this parable alongside the other two is faithfulness in anticipation of the return of King Jesus. The first parable back in chapter 24 is about two stewards, a good steward and a wicked steward, an evil steward. A similar story to a degree where the master leaves and one steward is faithful to do what he needs to do in keeping the household operating. The other steward is an evil steward who takes advantage of the other servants, starts beating them and starts spending time with drunkards. Taking advantage of the absence of his master, he is an evil steward. Then the first 13 verses of chapter 25 gives us a parable about the 10 maidens, five wise and five unwise maidens. And the focus there is five were focused in anticipating the return of the groom, where the other five were unwise, they were distracted, they weren't prepared, and so they were not ready when he returned. And so the three parables, Jesus speaks as what's called the part of the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives. 
Now, this is the second time Jesus is teaching from the mountain. The first one is back in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You guys know about the Sermon on the Mount. Right? The first time Jesus launches his ministry, preaching in 417, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes into this long sermon from in, on the mountain. And in that sermon, in chapter 5, it says that the disciples came to him, but there were crowds listening in to Jesus' preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Here, back in chapter 24, only the 12 disciples is Jesus' audience. There is no crowd. Therefore, everything that follows these three parables are directed to the faithful disciples, which means they are directed to Christians. The people that have professed to follow Jesus. So everything that we're going to talk about isn't just for the masses, for the unsaved. This is not an evangelistic story. This is a story that is intended to have the people that are professing to be Jesus' followers to evaluate how faithful they are as stewards as they follow Jesus. And what's most shocking and hopefully gives us the, the seriousness and the severity with which we should address and evaluate this story is that Jesus says in the paragraph right after this, Verse 31, when the son of man will come in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne and then comes the judgment. In other words, what follows is evaluation, judgment. Therefore, in light of that future judgment, each believer needs to evaluate whether they are the steward who is the one who had five talents, two talents, or like the steward who had one talent. Which makes even last week's message a little bit more important when you understand that there's judgment coming because of the rest of this chapter it is of utmost importance that stewards be found faithful and so i hope that maxim echoes in your conscience and in your heart as you listen to this parable and try to find yourself in it the three parables can simply be summarized with what you have in front of you The two stewards are supposed to be expectedly waiting for the return of Jesus. The ten maidens patiently watching. You don't know when he's coming back, so be ready. And then the last one, the one we'll focus on this evening is, as you wait, you are to be diligently working for the return of King Jesus. So tonight's focus is on being faithful and fruitful as a steward through diligent work. For King Jesus. And it begins with the responsibility that has been entrusted to us. Back in verse 14, a man is about to go on a journey, a wealthy man. He represents Jesus in this story. So, whatever we're talking about has a spiritual meaning behind it. In other words, we're talking about Jesus' first coming and second coming, the period what the theologians call the church age. We're in that period right now. We're waiting for the return of the master of this wealthy man or symbolically King Jesus. And so he has slaves, servants. Now this word is different than the word we talked about last week. I made a big deal about the fact that Paul uses unique terms last week and we explained how that is in the context of of, uh, Athens, in the context of Corinth, and in the context of that passage. The word here is what's familiar to all of you, doulos. We used to have a fellowship group here called Dulas. Slave, an involuntary 
slave. Last week we talked about the individuals who were stewards and servants. They were not necessarily involuntary in those positions. In this case, we're talking about individuals who were involuntarily made slaves. Now, some chose after the fact to stay as slaves. They could have bought their freedom, but because life underneath a great master would have been better and easier and more rewarding than life outside a stable uh, household, some people in the ancient world stayed slaves even though they had made enough money to become free and they got paid. It, was, it almost became like a job. And so some masters were cruel. Others, generally speaking, in the Roman world, most were not cruel. So Jesus focuses in on this social reality, on this social construct of having slaves and a wealthy master. And here, this master entrusts his possessions to these three slaves, expecting them while he's away to manage his assets, to make sure that the business continues to operate and to make sure that there is a return on that investment. And so it says he entrusted his possessions to them. But the way it's phrased, it means all of what he had, he entrusted to them. And it says according to each his own ability in verse 15. And so one got five talents, the other one got two, and the third one got three. Now we know we're talking about money because of verse 27. Silver is mentioned in verse 27. And in verse 18 also, money is clearly, it says at the very end, his master's money. So we're not just simply talking about ability. Some people like to talk about this passage by application as we're talking about your ability to sing or to play an instrument or to speak. By application, we'll get there. But the immediate context of this story is we're talking about money. And there's a reason for that. The greatest measurement of weight was a talent. The greatest numerical number in the ancient world was myriad. So when you go to the book of Revelation, for example, and you read about angels, it says myriads and myriads of angels. It would be the equivalent of zillions, right? Is that a real number? You guys are not sure. (laughs) What's funny is that um, in one of the Greek lexicons, it actually says zillions. I'm like, wow, this is scholarship. (laughs) They're putting zillions as a definition for myriads. It's not a real number, in case you're still wondering. Um, But that's the idea. Myriad of myriad. In other words, you can't count the number of angels. And then talent would be the highest level or measurement that you could have in the ancient world. You could have a talent of silver, gold, bronze, copper, various elements. But we're talking about money. So let's kind of have some fun together and talk about value. So he entrusts five, two, and one talents to three individuals. Now, one talent would be equal to 6,000 days of wages in the ancient world. Okay, that's 20 years, in case you're wondering. 20 years of wages is one talent. So if you say, okay, this guy got five, that's 100 years of wages that was entrusted to him. The person who got two, 40, and then the one person, 20. So, because gold was kind of the standard back then, I did some research, and today's value for gold, if you were to go and buy an ounce of gold today in the market, it would cost you to get one ounce is 1700 bucks. Okay, one ounce today, it's 
down from its highs. It's been higher than that, but it's at 1700 today. So you have 16 ounces in a pound, and then you have 75 pounds in a talent. Measurements, right? Weights. We're talking about weight now. So 75 pounds in one talent. You multiply all this, and you would get to one talent today, and gold measurements would be 2,064,000. So today, that would be equal to 2,064,000. Two talents would be 4.1 mil, and then five talents would be 10.3 mil. So that's what we need to kind of have in mind. That this is the best we can do. You can't really be super dogmatic about this. But if we're talking about gold, you can't just say, well, what's gold worth? Well, today it's worth this much. Five years ago, it was worth more. So in other words, this would be the equivalent value. I did some little bit of research on median incomes. And so if you live in Santa Clarita, per year, you make about, well, Santa Clarita would be 90 grand. So 20 years wages of 90 is 1.8 million. And then in Stevenson's Ranch, they make 123000 just across the freeway. You can make 33000 more. <laughs> the people that live there make 33000 more. So if you're a Stevenson's Ranch person, raise your hand. Tell everybody how wealthy you are. Come on. <laughs> Confess your wealth. Um, it would be equivalent to about $2.5 million over 20 years. So we're talking about a significant stewardship. Something that cost this master a significant amount of wealth. We're talking about generosity. But he was specific and strategic in how he allocated his wealth. In verse 15, it says, each according to his own ability. In other words, the master knew what each individual could handle. And so he entrusted that much money to each man. You could say that by implication for the Christian life, it doesn't necessarily represent anything more than God knows how much you can handle. And whatever he has entrusted to your care. Now we are getting into the conversation of the abilities that God has given you. And the stewardship to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse uh, chapter 12, rather, verse 4 and beyond. So it should be on the screen, but let me read it for us because we're talking about the stewardship that God gives to every single believer. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good or to equip the people in the church. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same, by one spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So we get into the conversation of the Christian have spiritual gifts. The Christians have spiritual gifts. And each one of us, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you have received a spiritual gift by the same spirit. And he personally tailor-made a gift for you. And he delivered it to you personally so that you would equip the saints, verse 7, for the common good. So we're talking about something that was carefully designed for you by God and distributed to you by the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 3, 
each according to his faith. So in other words, we're talking about something that God also providentially allocated. Now in Acts 17, when Paul is on Marsh Hill and he's evangelizing, he talks about God as the sovereign ruler. And he talks about the fact that God is in control of everybody's life. And he says, God determines your last name. God determines the length of your life. And God determines the location of your life. God is in charge. And he determines how long you live, where you live, what family you were born into. And he determines the stewardship that you will have for which you will answer. Practically speaking, we're talking about some people who grew up in the church by God's design. Some people who were saved young as 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 8-year-olds, 20-year-olds. Others got saved through a college conversation. Others got saved in a career when they were 30. And others get saved on their deathbed. One of the people who's a seminary student and works with me in the seminary, his father died unexpectedly two weeks ago. He was 52 years old. His entire life, he rejected God. A very evil man. And then the week before his death, he becomes saved. And Brian, who is a seminary student, spoke to him on the phone, and he's convinced that it was genuine conversion. But he had one week to live in the hospital, the whole week, before he passed away unexpectedly. Pastor John's football coach, going all the way back to college, long time ago. MacArthur would evangelize him regularly. He knew that he was a Christian. He knew that he came from a pastor's home. And Pastor John was faithful to be a faithful Christian in that context. And it was only a few years ago where his coach was saved. And shortly after his salvation, he died. Wasn't even able to be baptized. God determines providentially what stewardship you have been given if you were saved as a young individual or if you were saved older in life and you are responsible to be faithful to what has been extended to you. And so back in Matthew 25, we're talking about each according to his ability. Listen, that is a freeing thought to you as a steward. You are not responsible for other people's gifts. You're not responsible to be as good of a preacher as John MacArthur or Spurgeon or Calvin or Knox or Luther or Martin Lloyd-Jones or R.C. Sproul. You're not responsible to be as good of a musician as Ivan. There you are. It's true, he says. You're not responsible to be as good of an administrator as somebody. You are responsible... For your gift. That's what it means to each according to his ability. God knows your ability. And so he appropriately gives something that you can handle. Therefore, we have no excuse to say, oh, that's too much for me. I can't do that. No, if God has given you that gift, then you are able to do it and handle it and exercise it effectively. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, you are good and you do good. In other words, God is inherently good and all that he does is good. Psalm 84.11 says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In other words, if you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, God is not going to withhold something from you that you think you're entitled to. Whatever God gives you, one talent, five talents, ten, twenty, or a hundred talents. 
you're responsible for that. And that is given to you by God because God knows that it is within your ability to do that. Sometimes, though, we get paralyzed by fear and jealousy. Why isn't the effect of my gift as broad and qualitatively as good as the other person who has the same gift? And so we, we kind of refrain from using our gifts because of jealousy or because of fear. If you remember when I read the story, verse 25 says, I was afraid. And therefore, I went and hid the talent. So in other words, fear drove this third steward to be unfaithful. And we, unfortunately, orient our lives around our fears. And so if you fear flying, you're not going to fly to this place and therefore restrict yourself in some capacity. And what the Bible says is you have been given a gift and you need to be faithful to use that gift to honor God. And don't miss this. The steward, the servant who received the least in quantity, still received 20 years of wages in value. Still received, today's measurements, 2 million. That speaks to the generosity of the giver. Whatever gift you have, half a talent, one talent, three, five, seven, ten, whatever it is, it's valuable. And it comes from a generous God directly to you. And so we respond to what has been given to us. And we see the response in verse 16. Immediately. The one who received five talents went and brought five more talents in. The true faithful steward understands the urgency with which to use his gift. You don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't. Jesus made that very clear in scripture. Therefore, there's an urgency to utilizing your gift and maximizing the return on that stewardship. Pastor John is 83 years old. He should have been retired 20 years ago or so, right? 67. Isn't that the normal age for retirement these days? Chris Hamilton, tell us. No? 70? 70. All right. So he should have been retired 13 years ago. But he's not the only one who had 83s working. But you think about him, right? So he's preaching every week. He's not scrolling TikTok and uh, Instagram and Facebook. I know that. He's not spending his time, whatever years God gives him. His dad lived till 93. So he might have another decade or more. His mom died at 99. Let's pray that he goes beyond both of them. (laughs) But what he's doing is maximizing his time, whatever God will give him for the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 17 years, whatever number of years. The LSB translation was his idea. It wasn't Abner's. Don't tell Abner I said that, but it's true. It was MacArthur's idea. The Grace Academy that we just started this week on Tuesday, first day of school, 175 kids. MacArthur's idea. He leaned over to me at one meeting and said, Mark, start a school. That was the end of it. But he came up with it and a year and a half or almost two years later, this was January of last year. 
September of this year, how much has happened in those 17, 18 months in the educational system that vindicates, right, a private Christian school at our church? He didn't know the future. He's not a prophet. But he just sees what's happening and says, this is the right thing to do. He finished all the commentaries in the New Testament. Guess what he's doing now? Zechariah. He's going after the Old Testament. And Daniel is already being discussed. Now, other people are working and helping, but he's editing every single word. Guess what he did all summer? He wasn't preaching for two months. You know why? Because still 11 or 12, every single day at night, he was doing Zechariah. And about two weeks ago, he came into the office and says, I'm worn out. He didn't take a break. He didn't travel anywhere. He stayed in Santa Clarita in LA and worked on Zechariah every single day till 11 or 12 at night. Now, yes, he had meetings. He preached every so often in various places. But what I'm telling you is he is working because he understands the stewardship that has been given to him. And he will give an account for it. That's the response of a faithful steward immediately. Is that the response that you have for your stewardship? You're not sitting. You're not waiting for a better opportunity. You're not waiting for the next church. I'm kind of in transit. I'm only a college student, a seminary student. I'm only here because my job ends in two years. I have a short-term contract. And while I'm here, I'm just going to enjoy LA. But when I'm settled down in Florida, you know, the new heaven or whatever, then I'm going to start using my spiritual gift. No. If you're a Christian, the response is in verse 16, immediately you begin to put your spiritual gift, your stewardship to work. And beyond that, we are moved with such urgency because we know there's a reward coming our way. We see that in verses 19 through 23. So these men go out and they invest. We read that. And then in verse 19, After a long time, the master comes back and settles his accounts. Now there's the accounting that takes place with these individuals. And the first two, the five-talent person and the two-talent person, provide a 100% return on that investment. That's pretty good. Real estate individuals aim to get 3 to 8% per year. Stock investors try to get 10 to 12% average over 30, 40 years or so. These two individuals come back with 100%. Now, can you get 100% in the market? I'm sure you can, if you're lucky. Um, But the story is that these men were so faithful that they found ways. It doesn't say illegally. They found ways to make money for their master. And as they meet him, you can see that in verse 20, the one who had five talents came up and brought five more talents to him. Those two verbs came up and brought. Matthew adds a preposition to those verbs in order to stress this one thing. This, the focus is all about the master. They brought it to him, not somebody else. The focus is 100% on the master. In fact, the second verb Brought is a verb that is used in the Bible to talk about offering a sacrifice. It's a technical verb for that in the Greek language. In other words, they took the stewardship and they treated it like a religious act of worship. I'm going to deliver it back to my master as if an act of worship. 
That's why the vocabulary is unique. Now, that is not distinct to this passage. Paul, when Paul speaks of himself autobiographically in Philippians chapter 2, about his commitment to serving other believers in the church, this is what he says in Philippians 2.17. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Same offering cultic religious vocabulary here. I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So Paul viewed his life where he is advancing the faith, the service of your faith, he says. He's helping Christians mature in their faith. And Paul saw that as an act of worship. Do you remember the the very first verse in Romans 12? After Paul gives us 11 chapters of theology, this is who you are in Christ. This is what justification means. This is what it means that you were dead in your sins, and now you've been resurrected. Therefore, right? Romans 12, 1, therefore. Many of you have memorized this verse. But do you remember what it says? Therefore, because of who you are in Christ, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, now the entire life of the believer becomes an act of worship. It's not just something we do on Sunday morning or Friday night or Sunday night or midweek. No, your entire life, every single thing that you do becomes an act of worship. That's why we have religious, cultic, sacrificial terminology infused into the story. Because when you give an account to God for what you have been entrusted with, you will act, you will offer it to Him as an act of worship. And if we always thought about everything that we do as an act of worship, wouldn't that change our understanding of stewardship? That every conversation you have with an unbeliever, every conversation you have with somebody who needs counseling, every conversation that you have with somebody who's weeping in front of you, that moment is an act of worship where you're faithfully trying to piece passages together to try to help and not just throw John 3.16 at everybody. No, because you've studied your scripture, you've memorized it, you know it, you've meditated on it, and you know this is the right way for me to help this individual. It's an act of worship. It's particular. So Matthew says, the man who made 100% on his investment offered it to the master as an act of worship. So did the second guy. Why? Because there's a reward. There's a reward coming. And we see that in verses 21 and 23. His master says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then he repeats the same response in verse 23 to the person who gave back two talents. What's the reward we're talking about? Enter into the joy of your master. Well, the joy of your master in the Old Testament and New Testament is a, a description of entering into the marriage feast of the Lamb. We're talking about having a place at the table in this mystic union, when the church is united to Jesus Christ, her groom. And so in Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. 
Isaiah 40 verse 10, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is with him. And in Revelation 19.7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. In chapter 25 verse 10, the imagery is the bridegroom and the marriage supper. It's in the immediate, in the immediate context. In Zephaniah 3, verses 14 and 17, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. There's a lot of joy going on when God's people are saved and as they enter his presence, which is Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's the context he's talking about. Enter into this future joyful moment when the church and Jesus Christ are united forever. And the reward will be given to you at that point. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the rewards that Christians will receive. So what motivates us to be faithful and to do so immediately is this future reward. And so he speaks that there's joy that is a part of it. And there's also a reward where you are given the talents back. You have been faithful over little. Now you will give, you will be given much more to be responsible for. That's the generosity of the master. He lets the servants keep his possessions. You and I are stewarding whatever God has entrusted to us for a season, maybe 20 years, maybe 60, maybe 83, maybe 100, who knows. But we're stewarding that in order to get an eternal reward. Do you get that? That should motivate you to be faithful. That the reward isn't temporary. It's forever. And you will enjoy it forever. In all of eternity. But then the spotlight shifts to the third steward and takes us to our final section. That is retribution. In verses 24 through 30, we see the retribution from the master. And that is the final accounting moment with the wicked slave. And we know in that section that we already read, he meets with him and accuses him of being unjust. You're a hard man in verse 24. You're reaping where you're not sowing. You're gathering where you haven't scattered. I'm afraid. So I went and hid this talent. And so the master says, okay, for the sake of argument, let's assume that you're right about me, that I'm a hard man. I'm unjust. I'm unfair. I'm cruel. Shouldn't you have worked harder because of that? Doesn't that make sense? If you know that I'm going to be judging severely, wouldn't you want to work harder to make sure that your judgment isn't severe? That's the logical conclusion here. But instead, he blames the boss. You never blame the boss, right? Whatever happens, you don't blame the boss to his face. And Ecclesiastes says, you also don't blame him behind his back. Because the little birdies will hear it and bring it to his face, his ear. So what happens? His one talent is taken away and given to the person with 10. The idea is that to whom much is given, much is required, but also more is given. Don't read too much into a parable. The parable has one point. The point is given to us. 
So not every single detail has a specific spiritual meaning necessarily. Some people got into major trouble in biblical interpretation by making sure every single detail has some kind of spiritual meaning. That's not how parables work. There's one meaning. It's stated explicitly at the beginning or at the end of the parable, and you run with it. But the idea here is that the person who's faithful will be rewarded for being faithful. Okay? And the person who is unfaithful will suffer the consequences of his unfaithfulness. And so what Matthew is trying to do is to say, make sure that you are faithful to the stewardship that has been given to you. And urgency is accentuated here. The coming judgment is upon us. And so our pastor writes that, the erroneous estimation of his master's character was sufficient proof that this slave had no intimate or reliable knowledge of him. He portrays an unregenerate church member who has no spiritual fruit in his life or spiritual worship in his heart. He's blind to the Lord's kindness, grace, compassion, mercy, honor, majesty, glory, because he's never surrendered himself to the Lord's sovereignty and grace. That's a spiritual implication. Of that lesson. That even though he got 20 years of wages for free. For him, that was a severe act from his master. Instead of seeing that as an act of graciousness and generosity and mercy. And so in verse 26, he is called a wicked, lazy slave. In verse 30, he's called a worthless slave. Morally, he's evil. In regards to diligent, diligence, he is lazy, and so he is labeled as worthless. What's happening here is Jesus, in his parable, is focusing on the hypocrites, the frauds in the church. There are people who associate themselves with Jesus, who are, attend church, and who can speak the language of the Bible. But their genuineness of their salvation, of their repentance, of whether they're true slaves of Christ is evaluated by their fruit, by their faithfulness, by what they do in their life. It's true that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. But do not let that make you lazy. There's still an accounting that you will have to have with God for what he has entrusted to you. And so we see him being a wicked individual. Back in Matthew 7, the way Jesus closes the first sermon that he preaches on the Mount, 7, 21 and 23, he says this, in that day, on judgment day, Many will come to me Lord, and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, we were involved in church life. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's that moral judgment, the wicked slave. He is evil in regards to morality. That's the idea there. But get this, Paul picks up the same vocabulary in Romans chapter 12. The other passage that talks about the distribution of spiritual gifts. We went to 1 Corinthians 12. Now we're in Romans 12. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 6. 
Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. Service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another and brotherly love, give preference to one another and honor, here it is, not lagging behind in diligence, that's the word, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So he's evil, and then the next phrase is he's lazy, and that's the vocabulary that Paul picks up in verse 10 and says, you have been given a spiritual gift. Make sure that you are not lagging behind. Simply put, you're not lazy with your spiritual gift because faithful stewards aren't lazy. And finally, worthless, which simply means useless. You're completely of no use or profit in the kingdom of God. Oftentimes in the Greek, the idea was financial uselessness, worthlessness. So it's kind of when a country goes through a revolution and the currency is devalued. And basically overnight, the inflation is so high that your money becomes worthless. It's just paper. It's happened in Russia. It's happened all over Latin America. It happens when there's revolutions. That's the imagery here, is that your life is completely worthless, useless for the kingdom. That's the context we're talking about. In anticipation of the return of King Jesus, the master, when you evaluate how you've lived your life, is he going to say wicked, lazy, worthless? Paul picks up on the theme of worthlessness in Titus, the entire book of Titus. Please turn there because there's a few passages you should take a look at. Is all about manifesting the message that you have believed. If you claim to be a Christian and believe the gospel, and the term repeatedly is doctrine in Titus, then your life will show it. So in verse 12, he says, there's a prophet on the island of Crete who says about Cretans, they are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Same term, lazy. That's the idea that we saw in Matthew 25. And then in verse 16, people in the church, this is the context of the church, profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. And then he says in verse 7 of chapter 2, young man, you need to be an example of good deeds. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, Christians, people that have been redeemed, they need to be zealous for good deeds, verse 14. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you need to be obedient and to be ready for every good deed. In verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, you need to engage carefully in good deeds. And then in verse 14, our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Do you see the emphasis that Paul makes in such a short book on the manifestation of your faith through good deeds? Always ready, creative, a leader, so that You don't profess to know God, but by your deeds, you deny him being worthless. We're not talking about salvation by works. We're talking about demonstration of your profession through a life of good 
deeds because that is what you were saved for according to Ephesians chapter 2. So faithful stewards don't sit in the pews making up excuses on why they're not using their spiritual gift. Blaming God for not giving them a gift good enough, powerful enough, the gift that you wanted. They're not the ones who unwrap the gift and then keep wrapping it back up and trying to throw it back at God, hoping for another gift. Faithful Christians take the stewardship and the gift that has been given and utilize it. And I think many of us feel guilty that we're not doing enough and that we don't have enough time to use our spiritual gift. And we don't have enough resources to invest into advancing the kingdom. And that's true to a degree. But remember, God will only ask you to give an account for the gift that he providentially and personally gave to you. Wherever he placed you in life, whenever you got saved in life, whatever spiritual gift you have, and you have four places in the New Testament where you can identify your spiritual gift. We looked at two of them. You can go to 1 Peter 4 and Ephesians 4. Those are the other two passages to help you understand what spiritual gift you have. God is the one who prepares the soil in your life so you could be fruitful. And he personally delivers the gift to you. And then he will ask you to give an account. And Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to give an account. Everything is exposed to the one to whom we have to give an account. And the previous verse is all about the word of God being powerful. It is what exposes you and moves you and changes you and purifies you. What's the urgency? Verse 30. The worthless slave is thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Back in at the end of the first parable in chapter 24, verse 51, it says the unfaithful steward is cut to pieces, assigned a place with the hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, what happens is that unfaithful person is exposed as a hypocrite. The profession doesn't match his life. And we are talking about eternal judgment here. That's where it all begins though. Understanding that there's eternal judgment coming and so we repent. And we ask for forgiveness and we ask God to change our hearts. And in response to that new life that he has given us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we live lives that are different. And everything in our life becomes an act of worship. And you reorient your life away from yourself, away from your own pursuits, now unto God. And he is the only master you pay attention to. And so everything you have, you bring to him. The focus is him to be pleasing to him. Whether you're alive or you're dead, to be pleasing to him, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And so J.C. Ryle summarized this parable this way. Let us leave this parable with a solemn determination. By God's grace, 
never to be content with a profession of Christianity without practice. Let us not only talk about religion, but act. Let us not only feel the importance of religion, but do something too. We are not told that the unprofitable servant was a murderer or thief or even a waster of his Lord's money. He did nothing. This was his ruin. Let us beware of a do-nothing Christianity. Such Christianity does not come from the Spirit of God. That's the measurement. What kind of life are you living as a steward? Are you doing nothing? And if that's the life you continue to live, you will be exposed as a fraud and a hypocrite. And verse 30 predicts your future. So I hope that challenges you to evaluate your stewardship and are you faithful to what God has entrusted to you. Lord God, keep us faithful. Allow us to enjoy the fruit of our labor. We know that our joy comes from pleasing you. And so I ask that you would give us that focus. There's more joy in pursuing a life that is honorable to you than to pursue a life of sin. I do pray for every single person that all of us who are your children would examine our hearts and see if we might have evidence of being lazy, worthless, and evil. Forgive us of those sins and move us into the category of the faithful steward who's focused on pleasing you. For those who may not be your children, I ask that the Holy Spirit would prompt them and give them new life. Prompt them towards repentance. Expose their sin in their hearts. Convict them of sin as you promised you would in John. That they too would bow the knee before King Jesus and then spend the rest of their lives serving you and living a life of worship. We pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.